0: Yo, technology, what is it all about?
2: They show a recorded video call between a doctor and a patient, and they show AI apparently analysing the patient's emotions. It's a woman, the patient, analysing her emotions, coming up with data, coming up with, with prompts in real time on a dashboard. And I knew then that that was a lie, because Ali said this was a real consultation. And I knew that was a lie because I knew both the people in the video, they were both Babylon employees. And I knew from the grapevine and my contacts that this was all vaporware. It was something that was completely mocked up as a demo.
3: Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley. How's everybody doing? This week, we have a bit of a change of pace. So, readers of the Sunday Times may have seen last week that we published a big investigation into Babylon Healthcare, the AI chatbot startup that raised more than $1.2 billion, with a B. Um, It was valued briefly at $4 billion. It was celebrated by former health secretary Matt Hancock, signed several NHS contracts. It was a very big deal And then it all went pear-shaped. The company went bankrupt in August and amazingly sold its UK arm for just 500,000 pounds and sold a bunch of its other assets for around 6 million pounds, so just a pittance. Now, companies fail all the time. That's actually the business model of Silicon Valley. You find a bunch of companies taking very big swings, and if one of them makes it big, everyone involved may get super wealthy and it all works out. So a company failing in and of itself is not that interesting. But what piqued my interest here was just the sheer scale of Babylon's rise and fall. So, you know, really, how did it turn $1.2 billion into less than $10 million? And the, at the center of this is the CEO and founder, Ali Parsa. So anyway, a couple months ago, I just started kind of digging around to see what I could uh, come up with. And I came across a guy called Hugh Harvey, who's a radiologist. He worked at Babylon back in 2016, 2017, when the company was really starting to gain momentum. And to him, uh, the failure, which he watched from afar, was not at all surprising because what he thought when he was joining was he thought he was joining this kind of sophisticated AI company that was going to revolutionize healthcare by inventing this doctor in your pocket, so to speak, that was as good or better than the real thing, this kind of chatbot that could diagnose you, you know, recommend treatments, send you to a doctor, etc. Well, what he found was very different. It was not that. And so on my travels, I reached out to Hugh, and what you're about to hear is his story of his time inside Babylon, which again, for context, in terms of failures, this is a bigger one than Theranos, which everybody knows Theranos, um, Elizabeth Holmes raised $700 million, uh, Babylon again raised more than $1.2 billion. Now, of course, Theranos was just a straight up fraud. And for all those lawyers listening, we are not saying Babylon is a fraud. But it certainly did push the envelope, as you will hear, between what it was saying, you know, in its marketing kind of publicly about what the product could do versus what the product actually was. So anyhow, I just think it's a really interesting look at behind the curtain, so to speak, of startup land in particular. You know, when you're looking at startups in the healthcare space, things can get pretty tricky pretty quickly. I just think it's a really fascinating case study. If you haven't read the story, I will put a link in the show notes. So do check that out. It has lots, lots more detail in there. But um, what you're about to hear right now is my interview with Hugh Harvey, who today is managing director of a consultancy called Hardy and Health. And of course, formerly he was at Babylon Health way back in the Halcyon days as it was on the rise. So that's it. I will now hand you over to my conversation with Hugh, enjoy. Babylon is one of those interesting companies in that like it kind of shone very bright, there was a ton of buy-in from everybody in Westminster to the tech world, to a lot of some people in the medical establishment, et cetera. What they did was quite amazing. I mean, they raised, I think in total over a billion dollars. And not to say that they are Theranos, but Theranos raised seven hundred million, and we all know how that story went. Mm-hmm. And perhaps there's, you know, the the final chapters of this story are yet to be written. But it does seem that, you know, when you've had this company that raises a billion dollars is valued at four billion, and then very quickly thereafter basically crumbles into nothing. I think that bears examination. So when I saw Your tweet storm, I found it really interesting. So before you dive into that, if you could just briefly describe who you are and what you do and how and when you first came to Babylon.
2: So I'm a qualified doctor in the UK by training. In fact, I qualified as a radiologist. um, And I came from both a clinical and an academic background. i had done a a research degree after all of my specialist training. And then part of that research, i had done some early machine learning before the big hype wave around AI.
3: So what year is years-ish where it was this?
2: I did my academic training 2014
3: to 2016. Gotcha. And
2: I saw the potential for artificial intelligence in medicine. I was, and I still am a believer that where applied correctly and appropriately, it's gonna make huge differences mm. to the to the practice of medicine. And I was looking for jobs outside of clinical practice to get into industry. And Babylon was making noise at the time. And I looked at it, I downloaded the app, and I thought, well, this is interesting. And, and I applied to work there, and I ended up getting a post on the, on the clinical artificial
3: intelligence team. And what was the job supposed to be, at least your understanding of it then? And what, what year was it that you actually joined? 2016.
2: I was a clinical AI researcher, I think was the job title. Okay. And we were led by the data science team, as a small bunch of clinicians alongside them, helping them build and iterate on the chatbot component of the Babylon Health app at the time.
3: Right. And for people who don't know this story, I mean, the idea is that, and you can correct me where I'm wrong, but the idea of Babylon was quite alluring. It was like kind of like we can create effectively an AI doctor. I think they called it GP at hand, where you could kind of log in and be like, I'm feeling X or Y, I'm not feeling so great, these are my symptoms. And they could kind of, in a way, almost conversationally triage you, be like, okay, you need to see a doctor or this sounds like this, et cetera. But basically a kind of a, an AI medical concierge to get you help sooner, more elegantly and potentially more s- smartly. Is that roughly accurate? It is
2: about the gist of it. There's two main components of the app when I joined. One was the chatbot, and the second was the telemedicine component where you would see a real general practitioner gotcha. you know, over, a, over a video call within the app. Right. And the chatbot was that entry point where, mm. um, at the time, it didn't have natural language processing. When I joined, there was a, a graphical user interface, a picture of the human body, and you would tap the part of the body that was causing you problems, and then that would direct you down what we call the clinical flow, so ask you a set of questions I see. And when I joined, I thought it was based on artificial intelligence, but it wasn't. It was decision trees written by doctors, put into an Excel spreadsheet, which were called up by the system, depending which part of the body that you pressed.
3: But at the time it was called, they were billing themselves as an AI company, correct? Yes. Yes. Right. So when you walked in and saw the guts of the system which was sounds like basically an Excel spreadsheet with a bunch of different kind of if yes here, if no there. Um, what did you think?
2: So I was disappointed at first, but everyone seemed excited that we were commencing work on building what was known as this probabilistic graph model, or mm. PGM as it was called internally, which was going to elevate um, this into an artificially intelligent driven platform. And three components are being developed simultaneously to achieve this. First of all, the graphical user interface was being replaced with natural language processing interface. So instead of tapping on a part of the body where you would indicate was causing you problems, you would just put in a natural language sentence like, I've got a headache Mm. or my foot hurts. And one team was dedicated on natural language processing to figuring out what do people mean and therefore which clinical flow should they go down based on that text. Mm. And that NLP bit actually did work quite well. Mm. It would recognize what you're talking about. And if you said something like, I'm feeling suicidal, then we had automatic flags to say, you should go and see yeah. a mental health care professional and seek help and things like that. So the NLP was like, became the entry point. Then you got into the chat flows, and these were slowly taken over over time by what we called the PGM, this big probabilistic model. But this is where my doubts increasingly grew over the time that I was there, without getting too into the the science and the mathematics behind it, it's a probabilistic model based on Bayesian probabilities where the assumption is if you know the prior probabilities of things, then you can kind of calculate what the actual probability of a new thing happening is. And so they would ask the clinicians to link the probabilities of various clinical entities. So they would link diseases, risk factors and symptoms together. Mm-hmm. And imagine those as nodes on a graph. And then the clinicians would have to fill in the probabilities between all those connections in the graph. Right. And that kind of makes sense in a way. It's like if if you have central crushing chest pain, there is a probability you are having a heart attack. And our job was to figure out, well, what is that probability? But medicine is vast and complex. And people can present the things that mimic other things, that different people can... Report different levels of symptoms, different levels of pain, different different types of feelings. And so the model over time just became overly complex Mm -hmm. and the linkages just became almost impossible to give a sensible clinical probability of anything connecting.
3: Is there an analogy here to like Dr. Google? I like, uh, my arm hurts. You have cancer. Signs of yes. cancer, etc., and then it's like it may be cancer. May, maybe maybe got hit in the arm with a baseball. Whatever.
2: Here's the thing with medicine: the truth is, anything can be cancer. Really, <laughs> if you really think about it, you could you you and I could be, have cancer right now. We wouldn't know it, right. and you know that's just a fact of life. Yeah. And your random symptom that you get could theoretically there is a probability, however small, that it could be cancer. Yeah the way that the probabilistic model would work is obviously ask you lots of questions. It wouldn't just make an outcome, just based yeah, yeah. on one input or output. It would take you through a series of questions. And the questions weren't all predetermined. If you answered certain questions in a certain way, it would then direct you down a different kind of
3: mm. pathway
2: through this graph. Right. But you had essentially infinite pathways because there were so many nodes. I mean, we were told there were billions of nodes within this, this graph. Mm. So it became almost impossible to kind of clinically validate it because you couldn't test every single possible pathway that you could run through the graph.
3: It's like a gigantic bowl of spaghetti.
2: Exactly. And again, it wasn't machine learning or deep learning. The
3: clinicians were manually training every single parameter within the model. But was the idea that, and this is training, uh, is a term that's lots of people are using now when because because all of a sudden we're in this universe of large language models and they are trained, et cetera, is the idea that that training would eventually create a true quote unquote AI doctor and that like they wouldn't have to keep training it because at a certain point it would kind of have enough knowledge base that like you could ask it anything and it would, you know, hopefully find its way through the spaghetti bowl to the right answer and do it quickly.
2: There was no mechanism for the system itself to learn from data It was all manually inputted by clinicians.
3: So you're building a building with a bunch of rooms rather than something that's organic and can kind of react.
2: Exactly. It wasn't a learning system. I see. On its own, the way that, well, I come from a radiology background and you're aware there's lots of AI in radiology. Yes. That is deep learning where you give it a whole bunch of, let's say, x-rays, some of which are normal, some of which have cancer. Yep. All you tell it is, these are normal, these are cancer, go. And it will learn what the patterns are. The difference in this situation was we were trying to teach it, not the patterns, but the subtle little linkages that built up the entire pattern. Mm. We were like the thread weavers trying to weave individual threads through this massive model. Externally, they were calling it the AI brain, trying to liken it to the anatomy of a human brain. I took that as some PR marketing kind of angle. It didn't quite make sense, but, you know, people bought it.
3: Internally, when this was like, when you're kind of, knee deep in the muck of trying to build this thing and externally we're like it's an ai brain it's a magic machine was there a sense at all internally that like mm, a discomfort with that dissonance between the reality and what was actually happening cuz I, I i will say i'm out here in silicon valley i cover tech startups all the time they're all if not lying being really ambitious about what is actually they can deliver and how it actually works. So that's kind of the startup thing, but obviously this is medicine.
2: So you have to understand is that we as a clinical team were siloed within the data science team who were then siloed away from the business team and definitely siloed away from any talks with investors. Mm. So we had very limited visibility to what was being sold to investors, what was being sold to customers. We only sometimes saw keynote speeches that the c-suite would give on stage at conferences and things yeah and then you start thinking well they're saying things that a we haven't built yet and b aren't entirely true and there's a fine line it's, it's not someone sort of outright like lying and pretending when nothing exists it's yeah. kind of well, something exists but it's not quite the thing that you're saying it is and it's not quite there and i guess it, it you've heard of the concept of boiling frogs if you put A frog in boiling water will jump straight out. If you put a frog in cold water and heat it slowly, it'll sit there. And it almost felt like like that. Mm. In a way, is that slowly you kind of slowly realised that this hype machine was rolling and it was completely beyond anything that you could understand because you weren't privy to all the information that was being said. But it became, for me personally, quite difficult because the regulators got involved. Mm. And when the regulators get involved. You have to be honest and open with them. You can't pretend to the regulators. You have to
3: say, well... You can't do the marketing spiel with a regulator.
2: No, exactly. So my role became what was known as medical affairs to liaise with the regulators. And they were obviously concerned and they'd heard reports via that Twitter user, Dr. Murphy, that this thing was unsafe and missing red flag symptoms and things. Hmm. So they came and they approached and said... Can you become compliant? They're not like the Gestapo. They don't want to shut you down. They want to understand what are you doing? Are you compliant? If not, how can we help you be compliant?
3: Because effectively, in terms of their perspective, it's like inventing a new stethoscope or something. Exactly. It's a new medical device and it needs to be... It's a
2: medical device. That is the term. In fact, it's a specific type of medical device. It's called software as a medical device, which all of these AI companies are, are classed as. But the regulations back then weren't prepared for this onslaught, this wave of software that was going to come at them. And so there was a loophole, completely legal, and everyone has used it, not just Babylon, where you could say, right, well, I'm not going to claim a risky use case. I'm not going to claim to diagnose people. I'm just going to claim to triage. That's a step Mm, down the risk classification ladder. And if you claimed that at that time, you could then do what's known as a self-certification regulatory clearance. And when I read the regulations, I had to read it several times and then ring external consultants to go, is this true? I can just sign a piece of paper and say we're compliant and no one will check. They were like, yes, that is true. But I didn't want to do that. Ethically, as a doctor, I I was like...
3: (laughs) Yeah, that's just... uh, That kind of gives you the heebie-jeebies, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. So
2: I actually did all of the documentation that is required to be compliant.
3: Yeah.
2: And it was painstaking. It took six months and I was under quite a lot of pressured to deliver. They really wanted to announce that they were regulatory compliant. They wanted me to get FDA approval and I was I was liaising with the FDA and some external consultants. But it became quickly apparent that FDA approval was never going to happen. They were more stringent on it. But for the European one, there was this loophole that, that you could get. So I did the documentation. We did sign the Declaration of Conformity to say we're compliant. And then I resigned because I just felt like this is not correct. Mm. This is not how it should be done. And I went and joined a, a different AI company which actually had deep learning. We actually got a class two regulatory approval where we were audited and demonstrated compliance. I see. So, and since then, I now work in regulatory compliance for, for software devices, that's what I do for a living. So I learnt through a baptism of fire.
0: Yeah. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK.
3: Was there any moments that stick out where you're like, oh, the red flag pops up where you're like, oh, that this does not feel right. And I don't know if yes. that was like a speech, an event, a press release or something where it was like, whoa, 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 whoa.
2: Yeah. I, I specifically had an internal meeting where I'd explain to the team and the higher ups what this regulatory pro- approval meant and that we can only claim to be able to triage patients. For non-urgent findings and then for any red flag symptoms they would just get a standard you need to seek help there'd be no attempt to to go further and that's what the regulatory approval was for but i remember almost the next day there was an event where the ceo went and got on stage and started saying oh, our ai can diagnose and i was like well that's the risk class above what i've just told you that we can do and for me that became sort of
3: the the uncomfortable moment hmm. What was that? What was that event? Do you remember? I don't remember it
2: specifically, but he was on stage at one of these health, health tech conferences. And I saw I saw the video in the press releases and things. Right. And then the second thing was that as I was you know already thinking about leaving, they were talking about having an alpha go moment and they explicitly said alpha go moment.
3: Was this from uh, from Ali Parsa, the CEO? Yes. So very, very impressed
2: by how they'd managed to spin their PR around their AI, beating that mm. Go player, being televised. Apparently a movie was in the works, all this kind of stuff. And I think they were very besotted with that kind of idea. And so ideas were thrown around like, well, let's have an event where we invite the best doctors in the world onto stage and we ask them the same questions that we ask the AI and the AI will, will beat them, hopefully. And I was thinking, this, this just, it's just not going to work. And A, that's not, that's not what we've got regulatory <laughs> approval for. And B, right. I know that it doesn't work. So that was another sort of red flag moment for me.
3: Did that event happen?
2: Yes. Yes, it did. Oh. So after I left, so in 2018, they held an event at the Royal College of Physicians, mm-hmm. which is like the preeminent college in the UK. They ha- I think they had the head of the RCP on there. You might have to research to find out who exactly yeah. was there. They had a whole audience of journalists and and people, where they presented results from a study that they had done. It wasn't independently validated. Where they'd gotten a whole bunch of questions from the general practitioners registration exam, they'd cherry picked the questions they thought their AI could answer. They'd fed them into the machine, and they'd got eighty percent or so correct. And they said, "Well, we've we've beaten doctors at this exam." And there was this huge sort of PR event. Um, it made the press, made the headlines, but this is when the wider medical community sort of started complaining about it. Um, a lot of social media activity saying this isn't real, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I don't know exactly what happened, but all mention of that event have now been taken down by Babylon off the internet. The Royal College of Physicians, the statement is still online saying they're not going to allow Babylon to sponsor any more events at the, at the college, and so obviously relationships soured and. Things happened that, that I, I'm not aware of, but you can infer that it wasn't
3: good. So when you saw the company continue to raise hundreds of millions of dollars and then go public, raise hundreds of millions of dollars or more in, on the New York Stock Exchange, be valued at 4 billion, was there any part of you like, well, maybe they figured it out. Maybe they actually have done it. You know, Maybe I was just there really early. Or were you kind of convinced this whole thing was just going to collapse?
2: Not at all. I've still got friends who work there. I'm very deeply involved in the health tech scene here in the UK. I would hear about what's happening internally. So I kind of still knew. I I think the PGM got better to an extent. Hmm. Their regulatory team got better to an extent. Though they never actually gained a a Class 2 approval. But I was pretty convinced. But you've got to remember, the valuation wasn't just based on the chatbot. The valuation was based on well, they they morphed their business model into not just delivering telemedicine and a chatbot. They morphed it into this whole thing that actually made no sense to me. Was you know this loop of, of care to monitor people, to plug in your Fitbit and your Garmin, and we'll have all that data. And we'll be able to flag you know if you're sick before you're sick, and mm. we'll be able to monitor your diabetes. And they were they were selling it as like what they called value-based care. Mm. And from what I'd heard through my contacts and on the ground, none of this stuff was really ready. None of it had been tested or validated. And I I get the impression they were selling it to investors and to customers as this is a done and finished and tested product. But all the signs I was getting was that this, again, it was more hype, it was more of the same. It was growth at all costs, almost without regard to
3: the truth. There was a gong. What's the deal with the gong?
2: <laughs> so the gong was sitting on a table at the end of the business area, and they would bang the gong whenever they would signed a big deal. So the whole company would stand up and clap and cheer, you know. They never really announced the deals until we had an all hands every Monday morning. Mm. Then that, that they might announce it. But you know, you, you walking around the, the offices, you would bump into people from the business team and say, "What was that business deal you've done?" They go, "Oh, we've signed." you know, X insurance company or whatever it is. And you go, great, so what have we sold them? And they go, oh, well, we're gonna build X, Y, and Z for them. I'm like, oh, we're gonna build that, oh. And then every time the gong went off, you'd find out we're gonna build something different. And so the product basically for the salespeople, though I was never present today at their meetings, kind of became whatever the customer wanted, we promised and we said we'd build it.
3: I see, I see.
2: And the gong went off fairly regularly.
3: Right. And where was the office at this point? Because I think they later moved to the big office in Knightsbridge or something. But where were they at this time? Yeah, yeah. We
2: were, this, was, this was at the Knightsbridge office. I joined just after they moved into the Knightsbridge office. Very luxurious. No complaints about the work environment. They were very proud of their fake grass all over the office. That, maybe that's a metaphor you can build in somewhere. <laughs> fake plants hanging gardens of babylon style oh really free pizzas oh. yeah 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 free pizzas blackboards everywhere with Bayesian mathematics scribbled all over them glass walled offices for the for the bosses
3: so it kind of looked looked the startup part oh very much so
2: it was it, it looked luxurious it felt luxurious you know free food and drink for the for the teams uh, big open plan workspace so it was expensive i imagine at the time I was there, we took over more and more office space within the building. And I think at one point after I left, they almost had the entire building to themselves.
3: Wow. And did you have much interface with uh, Ali Parsa himself? or Yes, quite regularly, in fact.
2: He'd take us out for lunch now and, now and again. I had lunch with him two or three times. He's a nice guy, socially. Um, you could tell he was deeply passionate and, and 110% believing in the vision and mission. Yeah. of the company. I got more involved with him when I became in charge of the regulatory side of things. He would come and tap me on the shoulder almost on a daily basis and ask if we had FDA approval yet. And I'd say not yet, I'm working on it. And he was, he was always around pretty much. He'd lead the all hands on a Monday morning. He's a consummate salesman. He, he can sell the vision quite convincingly. And you could see that yeah. some people believed everything that he said.
3: Do you think it's um, if there's a potential here for this to kind of lead to some repercussions beyond the collapse of a company? Mm-hmm. Because the the thing that I find, you know, because I covered Theranos a lot, I talked to a lot of people involved there, and there's like a, a to your analogy around the boiling frog. You know, people join these type of companies often because they're like super aligned with the mission, and it sounds so exciting. And if you deliver, it's it's going to change the world. And then along the way, um, there starts to be, well, like the reality inside the office gets further and further away from the marketing. And at some point, at least in Theranos, again, this is me saying this, not you. In the Theranos case, it like it crossed over of like, you're actually just lying Mm -hmm. and you can't do that in medicine. It sounds like it was it was already fairly close to that line when you were there. It
2: was, I think it became more and more brazen. I remember watching a video, maybe a couple of years after I left, of of Ali on stage, and he was showing a demo, I don't know what, what the event was, but showing a demo where they were showing how their AI was going to be positioned within the systems that their general practitioners used during their video calls. Right. They show a recorded video call between a doctor and a patient, and they show AI apparently analysing the patient's emotions, it's a woman, the patient, so analysing her emotions, coming up with data, coming up with, with prompts in real time on a dashboard, and I knew then that that was a lie, because Ali said this was a real consultation, and I knew that was a lie, because I knew both the people in the video, they were both Babylon employees, and I knew from the grapevine and my contacts that this was all vaporware, it was something that was completely mocked up as a demo. And he was on stage saying, this is a real consultation. This is all live. It'll be coming out in a couple of months,
3: etc." Does that video still exist? Is yes. Live out there in the wild on the internet?
2: It does. Again, Dr. Murphy has a version of it on his Twitter feed. And looking back at that video, the number of half truths and deception is, is astonishing to me. And that's when I knew that the company was going to collapse because you cannot present that externally as a reality when it's just not true. Right. The problem is, I think Ali believed that they could get there, but it wasn't there. I'm not saying it's not possible to build such a system. It probably is.
3: Yeah, I mean, half the people I'm talking to these days in the large language model world are talking about exactly this. You're soon gonna have access, we all will, to the best doctor on planet earth, because this doctor will be trained on every single medical case and every single textbook and blah, 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 blah. And you'll just be able to ask it anything and it'll treat you. I can go on
2: a whole rant about large language models if you want, but I work directly with the FDA and the regulators here in the UK. Both mm. said large language models in their current capacity will never get regulatory approval. So they will never be allowed to be, to be diagnostic devices. Why? Because you can't validate them. What do you mean? So in order to do validation for a medical device, Mm. you have to do clinical studies. So you have to demonstrate in a clinical study that your device is both safe and effective and performs above a pre-specified safety and efficacy threshold. The problem with large language models is threefold. One, the range of things you're trying to validate is almost infinite. You can ask it, as you said, anything. So therefore, the sample size you'll need is just incredibly large. Second is that what's called non-deterministic. If, if you and I both go on ChatGPT and ask it the same questions, it will give different answers. And that's, that's not acceptable in medical devices. If you have a medical device, mm. you want it... You know, If something's measuring your heart rate, you don't want it to give you different measurements
3: based on who's using it. But then you can just turn down the, te- the temperature, right? Even
2: in a temperature of zero... There's research to show.
3: It'll still make up answers. There's
2: still uh, a level because they're generative. They're not factual. And third is that none of these large language models have been built with the relevant quality assurance processes in place. So the best analogy I can describe is that, let's say you were making a medical device that gets implanted in the body. There are rules about how to sterilize that equipment, right? So you have to show that you are applying those rules. When you're building software, there are rules about how you should be developing your software. Mm -hmm. These large language models do not comply with those rules. Because you set out a a bunch of requirements, you get a bunch of data, and you train it, but you have no way of fine-tuning that that output or that outcome, making it better or worse.
3: Yeah, it's a black box. Nobody knows how it works. You 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 don't know how it works. You can't take an LLM into the shop no and replace this part and then it works the way you exactly the way you want exactly
2: so in their current capacity i'm talking about the current state as mm-hmm. we are now september 23 they will not get regulatory approval
3: fascinating so getting back to babylon is there anything left there that you see that especially you know given your current work working very closely with regulators and all this cutting edge stuff and as we all know medicine is in dire need of some greater efficiency, et cetera. Is there anything there?
2: So the GP at hand sort of telemedicine service, I believe still exists, wasn't sold off. And that is a service that patients demonstrably like to use. Yeah. It's just a question of, is it profitable? Can you run it at a, at a, at a profit? And that's up for the remaining team to to figure out. I don't believe they're trying to use AI in the background to help cut their costs. Because the whole premise of Babylon was that, look how amazing our AI is. Look how amazing our telemedicine service is. We're gonna use the AI to make the telemedicine services more efficient, which never transpired. So I think the chatbot is dead. I think all that value-based care stuff is probably dead. I think what's left is just a standard common and garden telemedicine service, which is fine. There are plenty of other similar outfits out there who are not claiming to do AI or do value-based care. They're just saying, you want to see a GP? Pay us a fee. You can see a GP on your phone.
3: That's not changing the world. It's a step forward. It's not the revolution that was promised. Let's put it that way.
2: But to create a revolution, you generally have to come up with something truly transformative. Not a giant tree of spreadsheets. Not a giant tree of spreadsheets, no. To be clear, when it was the PGM, it wasn't a giant tree of spreadsheets. It was this massive model that was quite complex.
3: Fascinating. Well, look, thank you so much. We're going to keep digging into this, but I'm always fascinated when there's a great conviction out here on the West Coast that, you know, basically tech has disrupted itself. They go after each other because they know how best those tools and things work. But the real opportunity is for tech to disrupt the rest of the economy, education, medicine, construction, whatever. I'm always fascinated by when that ethos or those attempts run into the brick wall of like trying to do this in the real world or do these in different contexts. And it's just, it is always way more complicated, I think, than people assume going in. And it can lead to things like this.
2: Absolutely. I think it applies across all sectors, driverless cars, all all this kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, they call it the last mile problem. And I think, you know, tech in general is really good for tech based problem solving. The internet has been, you know, it's a modern marvel. But we haven't really solved the fundamental science of how to make it practical and adaptable to fully real world environments with all the complexities and randomness and chaos that, that is contained within it
3: thank you and um we'll see how uh, how it all shakes out and that is all the time we have i want to thank you for taking the time and for sharing i want to thank you all for listening like i said do go do check out the um piece if you haven't read it already it's very detailed, quite long, but I would argue a very fun read. So do check it out if you want to hear more. And yeah, you can obviously find that at the Times. I will be writing about a bunch of other stuff this weekend at the Times. So log on, click in, if you say that. And we'll be back next week with another show. Thanks very much. Bye-bye.